0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the CX Cast, your source for all things experience. I'm one of your hosts, Angelina Janis, joined as always by Adele Sage. Hey, Adele. Hey, Angelina. Hey, hey. Today, a special guest from Trifecta. We actually have the Chief Customer Officer, and he's going to share about his role and everything that he does to further CX transformation. So, Paul Stalen. Thanks so much for joining us. Well,
1: thank you very much for having me.
0: Of course, and every chief customer officer or CCO, as we can just call them for the rest of this episode, has a different role. We found it's a very unique role. So maybe you could start by telling us about your role, what it means to be a CCO at Trifacta.
1: So uh, Trifacta is an enterprise software provider. The chief customer officer here is responsible for making sure that the companies that purchase Our software are able to implement it well, get value from it in the long term, and it fundamentally means orchestrating a customer journey across professional services, education, our customer success, the account management team, customer support, and the online community. So all the people who touch you in your journey from purchase to value.
0: And how in your background did you sort of prepare to be able to lend expertise across that entire journey?
1: I think like most people who are in this role, I kind of fell into it over time. I was in a startup previously uh, named Burst, where I was one of the co-founders and and over time got pulled into the delivery side of the business as orchestrating these pieces became hard and trying to design a holistic thing is is one of the things that I bring to the table. Uh, and I was able to do that and enjoyed it. So I've I've kind of just fell into the space. There's nothing I did that prepared me for it other than being thrown into the deep end and learning how to swim.
2: And I imagine as part of your work, you have created a CX strategy that you're executing on. Can you tell us more about what that looks like and what are some of the key parts of your strategy?
1: The strategy that we pursue rather uh, enthusiastically, I like to think anyway, is centered around two primary pillars, each of which has two pieces. So there's four component parts. First, if the customers are unable to actually drive real business value with our solution, and what we really do is help people prepare data for analysis so they can make better decisions, we need them to be able to realize value, which means they have to have a use case live and in production where they're able to take data, prepare it for analysis, and then people are able to consume it. And that's one pillar, because if they're not getting value, they're not ever going to (laughs) renew. The second pillar is because the people that do this work really are the the key assets in these businesses it's not just the fact that you can prepare the data your data is always changing it's evolving your business needs how you need to look at it this is not static so having people and athletes that are able to use our technology well able to tackle new use cases able to get into these situations quickly and deliver you know more value and evolve the solutions over time is a second piece so we need to get valuable use cases live and then we need to get a team in your organization capable of using our uh, software to solve new problems, evolve, move, and, and get forward. So those are the two things that our customers need to drive value. That's kind of the R side of the ROI, so the return side, use cases, and capable people. On the I side, we want to make it so that people get the maximum return on investment. Part of their investment is the money they spend with us, but Frankly, often in most software solutions, another significant cost is how much effort they have to invest internally with their own people to keep things going and achieve that value. Reducing the overall investment required to get that value, we've got a number of mechanisms in place where we track effort and other items across uh, the customer journey and then systematically work with product, work with our people, work with education to systematically drive that effort investment down. And the other piece is not only the actual investment people make, uh, there's the how much investment it feels like they're making, which is the perceived effort. And we've put in place a number of uh, strategies to help drive the perceived effort down as well. So trying to drive value up with the use cases and the people, and then trying to drive the actual and the perceived effort down. So you get the better ROI relationship and fundamentally we believe if people are able to get the value they they expected when they bought your product and they can do it easily they will continue to renew year after year and grow into new use cases and in, in other parts of the business so that's the four pillars that we really pursue here
0: and that aligns with how forrester thinks about prioritization you know in your cx strategy in general so value to the customer value to the business and effort feasibility it sounds like a very logical way to say, hey, this is what my team can help with in improving the customer experience. And here is what might be deprioritized for now because we're going to see a big lift in value to the customer or we're going to see that perceived effort. Love that you talk about perceived effort because customer perception is everything. We're going to see that perceived effort decrease. So makes total sense. And- How do you go systematically at scale to reduce effort? Because I think it's really hard for folks to understand what effort even looks like. We talk about effort. We don't really know what our customer's effort looks like. We don't know how to measure it or understand it or break it down. So how do you do that?
1: Yeah. Well, and measuring the actual effort your customers are expending broadly can be a bit of a challenge. The way that we're first implementing this, and you can ultimately have people in your organization estimate how much time each of these things is taking. Uh, but fundamentally, the most basic measure of effort that we use systematically, and it's pretty easy, is on each support case that comes in, we track how many communications back and forth there are. Because in general, we're asking you a question as we send you a message and say, hey, that, you know, sorry to hear this, but what can we do to fix it? Can you tell me this? I'll help you. Every time a message goes back and forth, the customer has to think, process, probably has a little bit of homework, send us some information, we send something back. And so just measuring the raw number of touch points, not perfect. Because not every touch point is equal cost, but fundamentally measuring that how, how much back and forth it takes is how we measure effort. And it's comparatively simple. Just read it right off the case.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like a sort of data heavy process if you go beyond the numbers to understand what's actually happening in these interactions, any insight into how you would look into how valuable a conversation with a lot of interactions is versus one that's sort of just back and
1: forth? In general, we measure effort and then we break down each case that comes in, where in the product it is and what type of issue it is. So we can look at how two cases, generally those are lighter, right? You look at, for us, some of our customers prepare unbelievably huge amounts of data, terabytes and terabytes of data, and they care tremendously about performance. And tuning performance can take real time, like each back and forth is pretty heavy. So we categorize them by the type of issue, where in our product, you know, what functionality they're exercising, and then we capture and track the effort in those different areas. And every 30 days, we go back and look at, okay, where are we seeing the most effort now? In those areas, you do a forensic deep dive so that you can see, okay, these tickets happen a lot and they're high effort. Let's go look at four or five of these. Is there anything we can do to systematically drum this down? Is there anything in the product that would make this easier? And just keep looking at those areas where we are taxing our customers most and incrementally improving them. We do this analysis every 30 days. We meet with product every 30 days. So if there is anything we can do systematically to change the way we deliver our offering, we do so. And over time, you can crank that actual effort down.
2: Are there any instances where more effort is actually good, where you actually want your customers to interact with you more, and that is actually a better experience? Or do you find that it is exclusively something that you want to drive down?
1: I would say engagement is good. uh, Effort is bad.
2: And so how do you define the difference in the data that you look at? How do you know when it's effort and how do you know when it's engagement?
1: Fundamentally, we've got in the customer journey, a couple milestones and phases that we walk through. One, your CSM is engaging with you, guiding you, giving you expectations, setting the roadmap out. We're giving you some best practices, advice, and other things. That's good engagement for us. The more you understand how to engage with us and how We recommend that you do things, the better your experience is going to be, right? If you're following more of our best practices, you'll be better off than if you follow less. So that engagement is good. And we do measure engagement from our CSMs with our customers and try to track and measure are we talking to you? Are you listening with us? Are you engaging? And if there are problems with how often we're talking to you, that's a red flag. During the initial use case or two, we generally will have our professional services A, the education people come train you because every tool is different. Driving a car in in the UK is a little harder and different than driving a car in the US, even though it's the same thing. Getting the, the orientation, learning to switch hands, other things, having someone help you with those types of things is helpful. During the deployment, in general, we go the extra mile if we have to to make sure that things are going well. That engagement, we're helping you get through this effectively. We don't track rigidly. The hours and effort that we're expending, we just want to make sure you get through, get live in the time frame you expected, with the performance you want, and other good items. So the one place where I would argue effort is almost always bad is in support, because something unexpected happened. Could be we're supposed to do this and you just didn't know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Could be you're trying to do something for the first time. The initial deployment's over. You don't have someone in PS who's showing up every day to help you figure out how to do these things. You ask a question we want to make sure you get your answers quickly. We want to make sure that if there is a behavior that you don't expect that is a problem, we help you figure out how to address it and move forward. That's the area where we really are are focused on effort as being undesirable as opposed to desirable.
2: That makes sense. And so I'm assuming that you have a a framework that you use when you think about effort.
1: Can you walk us through that? So in, in measuring the actual effort, In this case, we do track and and kind of monitor these things analytically. I've been in the analytics space for 20 years. We do like metrics, numbers, and hard data. Of course. In the perceived effort is where we've invested quite a bit on having a communication framework. There's a number of different things, and it's just word choice, positioning, skill. There's a whole bunch of just mechanical best practices that can make one interaction feel very Expensive from an effort standpoint, and a very similar interaction feel like that was really easy. Uh, so that's the place where we've rolled out a very specific framework we call a pace to help make sure that when we're talking to our customers and engaging them as we work through these situations with them, that we're we're doing it the right way, so that at the end of that process they feel like that was good, that was easy, and not like oh my god that was scary, that took a long time, my confidence is shaken and other bad things. So we want to make sure that the perceived effort is as low as possible.
2: It sounds like a pace is a is an acronym, is that right? Does it stand for something?
1: It is. So a pace fundamentally is is centered around positioning alternatives. So you have, you know, the first a there are alternate ways that you can proceed from here if you're blocked or if something's not working as you expect. You can go this way, you can go that way giving the customer a choice fundamentally and rooted pretty deeply in psychology. Humans always feel better about something if they've made a choice, even if one is, well, you can sit here and wait for a thousand years or you could do this other thing and have it solved tomorrow. People feel awesome about solving the thing tomorrow. If they show up with an issue and you just say, well, we can't solve this until tomorrow, they're like, oh man, I have to wait until tomorrow. And doing things, presenting the alternatives Provide some good basis for people feeling better about the overall outcome. You want to phrase things positively, and there's a whole framework we use here where you want to be a traffic light with a green arrow somewhere. You don't want to just be a stop sign that doesn't tell you what to do. Right? People don't respond well to a stop sign. Uh, There's a again quite a bit of psychological research that basically says you know early in life we learn a couple of behaviors. If you get a stop sign, you can go from mom, you can go to dad or from dad, you can go to mom or other parent, or you could throw a fit or you can just lump it. And giving someone kind of a, hey, look, what you're doing right here isn't going to be great, but here's a way that I can help you do it. Positively phrasing things really helps. You want to also be sure that you are taking an advocacy position. People, when they have a problem, want to feel like you are taking their side. So saying simple things like first-person plural, like, hey, let's do this, or hey, in your position, I recommend you do this, things that basically show you're either in the boat with the person that you're talking to, or at least you're looking at it from their perspective. So that advocacy is really important. So they feel like you're solving their problem for them. It just makes it feel lighter, right? They're not having to battle you to get something done. You're on their team. You're helping them. You're guiding them. You're giving them the alternatives. You're positively phrasing whatever path forward that's going to be easy. I'll help you. And they feel really good about that. In the software space, there's a couple other things that you also have to be pretty mindful of. One in particular, but uh, confidence. If there are things that are behaviors that are unexpected uh, that you're getting as you look for possible causes, you don't want to say, well, we've had a ton of problems in this part of the product. Let's go look there. Oh, you don't have any problems there. That's a miracle. Let's go look at this other place. And you know, by the end of the interaction, you may have solved their issue, but they'll leave like, oh my God, these guys have problems everywhere. Completely shattered their confidence in you as a provider. You can't do that. You can't speculate on the phone and you have to position what you're doing as you are troubleshooting, being able to say, hey, look, this behavior can be caused by some settings or some things over here. Let's look. Good. Okay, there that's not being caused by that. You don't explain why you're looking there. You just say that we are looking there. And there are some other things you can do in terms of bolstering the person's confidence in you as a as an individual hey i don't know this part of the products as well as i, I will need to to solve your issue here i'm going to go engage one of the experts and bring them in here and i'm not saying i'm i i do not know anything and i'm not saying well i got to go get engineering i'm just a support guy and then you've completely undercut their confidence and support it was oh i got to deal with the engineers if i want someone to really know something. And you just can't do these things. So you have to maintain the customer's confidence, both in you as an individual, you as a representative of your function, and you as a representative of the company. Simple word choice as you go through these items that happen all the time can really help bolster the confidence. There's another piece of confidence that really is tied with the E, which is the empathy part. Often when people do have an unexpected behavior that is causing them delays, challenges, maybe their boss is upset, there can be a lot of heat and fire on them and the anxiety and stress that they feel when they first engage with you, super easy to tackle right up front. And you can almost feel people just putting the emotional weight down. If you say, hey, look, I know this is stressful when this happens. I'm hearing your emotional content. I'm acknowledging it. And I'm saying, I get it. You want to hit that right up front so you don't have someone upset who's like, you're not listening. You're not doing like, it. Just address it and then follow up with a confidence in which is, hey, look, the good news is I'm here now. I'll work through this with you. Now let's work the issue. And giving that permission for the customer to put that stress down, to put that baggage down up front, makes the whole rest of the interaction feel easy. If you don't acknowledge it, it they're carrying that the whole time. And uh, it's really important to tackle that right, right up front. So those are the five. So alternatives, positive positioning, advocacy, confidence, and empathy. That was a really long overview.
2: <laughs> it's basically like a mini course in, in human psychology, like all the relevant pieces for providing good support that people will feel confident in and have the best outcome.
0: Yeah. And I was thinking it's, it's both customer centric, but also sort of a training in and of itself to just understand what it is, start to understand what I need to bring to an interaction. So. When you're enabling teams with this framework, any insights into how to best roll it out, how to get the training, how to ensure that it's being utilized?
1: The way we rolled it out, which I won't say is the best way, but it worked for us. There's a book that kind of mandated everybody read as Backdrop, which covers the APA part of a pace, but not the C and the E. Mandated that everyone read the first few chapters. Went into a session, kind of walked through the different pieces of it, And then we went to workshops. And I made sure that my leadership team had gone through this first, had read the book first. We talked about it for about two quarters before we rolled this out to the team. So at least people knew what we meant. And then very specific situational engagement. And we've alternated between spoken and written, because the two primary ways that we engage with customers is, you know, now on Zoom, fundamentally. Used to be phone calls and written word. And so going through. The part of the journey where you're picking up an issue and the customer has reached out, now you're engaging with them for the first time. How do you talk them through that? How do you get permission to go do homework and go figure out what's going on or to bring in an expert to help you figure out what's going on? How do you come back to them and propose a path forward and a possible solution? And then how do you get them all the way through resolution and closing? And so there's just a a typical arc. And so alternating in those things between written and spoken in each of those parts of the journey. Two folks do the live situation, the rest of the group, and we have you know many teams, so each group has four or five people, maybe six, do a little workshop. The other people give advice, and you just kind of rotate around. For the first time, we went back and did the first workshop after doing many, many intermediate pieces, and everyone was stunned at the picking up an issue. Everyone was so much better. The fine points are what we're working on, and the amount of progress that people have been able to see has been pretty profound. But there's nothing like actual practice. And then your, your managers have to enforce this in the written word when they're going through what you wrote to the customer that's saved in this particular ticket. Did you do this or did you not do this? And if we're on the phone with a customer with a CSM and someone from services, did you use it or not use it? And then be able to talk about it afterwards if it wasn't done. So there's nothing like dry rehearsals with internal people in a workshop to build new muscle. So that's what we did. Undoubtedly, every organization could do it somewhat differently, but that that worked for us.
2: It makes sense that because it's basic sort of human psychology that practice would help a lot. I'm almost picturing people, you know, practicing things like alternatives on their children, right? (laughs) My, My my kids, I do that all the time. It's like, you get a choice. you want this or this? And, you know, obviously you say it differently to a kid than you would to a client, but those seem like great tools and techniques for people to use in all facets of life not just at work. So you must be creating wonderfully empathetic and thoughtful employees who go out into the world and use these techniques well in their lives.
1: We're trying. Certainly it's helpful. I'm a very different consumer of support from other organizations now. Are you more critical? Well, they don't do these things. I'm like, you're doing this wrong. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You should be saying this. I just told you that. I'm giving you gold here. Just pick it up. (laughs) So yeah, it definitely bleeds through to to my life as a consumer and certainly uh, in a household. The always providing a green arrow somewhere in the stoplight for your kids is a great way to avoid the temper tantrums when they're young, for sure. (laughs) I bet. Love it.
0: It does make me think, you know, the expectations for front lines have really gone up. I mean, maybe they've always been high, but as we try to scale it, just, it, they're touching so many customers, having these deeper relationships. Any sort of surprising solutions to help them to make sure the execution is good when they're writing these fast notes? I'm sure they're very busy making sure that they've got quality in there.
1: Yeah, actually, uh, this is kind of funny. So one of the things that we stumbled across is obviously the written words very important, right? And again, about half the interactions or more, sixty mm-hmm. percent maybe, are written as opposed to live on the phone as a percentage of time, not as a percentage of total communication. As I spoke to people, like, how do we make sure that people are using the right words, have the right tone, that we stay positive, that we're helpful in overall things? And, and I spoke to some folks in my organization who grew up speaking not English as their language, and Lord knows. As my my mother always said, English is easy to kind of get buy-in, but it's impossible to master. Mm -hmm. Many of them had actually purchased Grammarly to get just all the goofy, weird stuff that we have in the English grammar rules reflected so that they didn't get tripped up in any of these things and they were able to send always grammatically correct things. One of the things that you can do in Grammarly is actually set tone and word choice guidelines. So... I talked to a bunch of people a lot of people had paid for Grammarly out of their own pocket, which I didn't know. I felt bad about like, if you're buying it for work, we should be paying Mm -hmm. for it. So we bought an enterprise subscription to it, basically for our, all our customer facing functions. We went in and and made very specific word choices. Like you can't say the word bug. Mm -hmm. There's other word choices that you just can't make. Like we automatically propose a different word and allows us to be relatively thorough and consistent in the word choices that you use to make sure we're staying on the positive side as we explain these things and in a manner that also instills confidence. That was a tool that people were already using. And I, uh, one of the gentlemen who worked directly for me had been using it for Tone already. It's was like, oh yeah, I just did this. I was like, why didn't you tell me? Like, this, was, this is easy. And so we rolled it out. Another one that was kind of surprising is, you know, looking at the actual effort that people were expending we're losing a lot of time at those cases that had a ton of interaction. A lot of it is just booking meeting times. And it take two, three days of back and forth proposing alternatives. And i read these things. And I'm like, oh my God, we lost three days to find 30 minutes to talk. Like This is insane. So we use Calendly now. So when we send out our proposal for, hey, let's meet today or tomorrow at these times. And hey, look, here's Calendly. If these times don't work for you, instead of sending me a list of times that do work for you, just pick one and try to short circuit this so we can make sure that we're engaging with you quickly. It's never better to have a ticket last 10 days than three. So the stress and worry about having something that's not resolved, I don't have a time scheduled yet, all of that is expensive emotionally. So being able to schedule the time, being able to say, hey, look, I got to go do some homework. I will get back to you in two days or one day or two hours, whatever the time frame is, and you have to hit it so that the person feels like, okay, you've got my issue. You're working it. I can trust you to work it. And if we do need to talk, we can get together quickly and drive this to closure. So once I have the meeting scheduled, I feel better because I have the time scheduled. The uncertainty and worry about not having the next step mapped out is expensive. So Calendly was another thing that we, we rolled out to help make this process easier and less emotionally expensive. Any any step where there's uncertainty is bad.
2: So what you're saying is tools that end in L-Y. Uh, apparently, that,
1: apparently that, that's the, the successful piece now. So we'll have to change our name to Trifactaly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Listeners, you heard it here first. Get tools that end in L-Y.
0: Well, we've definitely run the gamut in terms of your big strategy and very tactical things. Any other efforts that are proving successful for you, Paul?
1: Yeah, I think one of the other areas that is a huge opportunity and I think is a fabulous way to help, A, engage people and enable them to learn from others, because I buy software, I go to conferences. My favorite stuff is hearing how other people like me are doing things. I like to hear from the vendors and hear their best practices, but I really, really like to hear how others are doing things. Uh, So we've invested in just an online community. Every software company has one, but we're really trying to make sure that we are bringing to the table the data engineers and the data analysts who do the type of work that we enable them to do are able to come and talk about some of the really crazy stuff they're doing and ask someone else, how did you do this? How did it work in your organization? Oh, that's how I should do it. And getting that interaction where they can talk about not only the software, but their use cases how they rolled it out internally, topics that we can speak to, certainly, but we don't have the credibility that another customer does. It's just flat out, we just don't. So having that interaction and that best practice sharing helps A, each person get better as they learn from each other. B, really builds that sense of belonging and community as well, which is a big part of, I would argue, being a customer in anything that's really helping you do your job better. You really do want to be part of a community and and learn and get better and build out your professional skill set. This is a great way to do it. So we've rolled out a community, re-rolled out the community, relaunched it in April. And I've been investing pretty heavily in getting good clean content, good clean moderation, setting it up so that there's real experience and users in there that you can go ask questions of. And from my perspective, you know, purely selfishly as, as a vendor here, the best ticket is the ticket that never gets filed. So if they can find the answer to their question by looking up something in the community or asking a question or doing you know getting an answer from us or from, from another customer or from a partner who implements our solutions, awesome. And that ability to feel like I, I can paddle my own canoe here really helps people feel capable, confident, and uh, other pieces as well. So that it really does help with the overall journey. So that's that an area we're investing relatively heavily right now. That's one of the newer investments we've been doing to bring that up to speed and up to the type of experience we want to provide.
2: Very nice. I like it. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. This was such an interesting conversation to hear more about how you're running customer experience at Trifacta.
1: Thanks for coming. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hopefully it's been helpful to someone somewhere.
2: I'm sure, I'm sure. Everyone, that was Paul Stalen, CCO at Trifacta, and this has been the CXCast.